Welcome to Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPKN the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local and nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America during this pivotal and dangerous moment in our nation's history. Hosting today's show is Ruthie M. Baumgartner, who is a longtime instructor in literature and writing at Central Connecticut State University, member of the Executive Committee of the Connecticut Conference of the American Association of University Professors. Ruth also serves as a member of the Board of Directors and a theatrical director herself with the Westport Community Theater. Ruth Ann is here again with us in the studio this month. Richard Hill is also here with us. He's the host of uh, First Tuesday Rainy Day Radio, as well as Organic Farm Stand, and also uh, rotates as a host of our program, Mike Check. Richard is a musician, teacher, and mentor with Youth Radio Connecticut. I'm Scott Harris, host of WPKN's weekly public affairs program, uh, Counterpoint, as well as our, our show, Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, which both Ruth Ann and Richard are contributors. Later on this morning, we'll be talking with David Diane. He's executive director of the American Prospect, and we'll be talking about Donald Trump's third indictment on the serious charges related to his attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. But as we begin our show this morning, uh, right now, we're very happy to welcome our first guest, Eric Dreister, to Resistance Roundtable. Eric is an independent political analyst and host of Counterpunch Radio. You can find his articles, podcasts, audio commentaries, poetry, and lots more at counterpunch.org and on his Patreon page. Eric, thank you so much for making time to come on our program this morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me again. So, Eric, uh, Richard is going to um, open things up with our first question and kind of set the tone for this morning's first interview. Great to have you, Eric. It's a pleasure to have you back on WPKN's Airwaves. And I just wanted to mention that I'm a fan of your Counterpunch podcasts, and I've heard you state over the years that uh, you made your bones as an anti-war and anti-capitalist activist during the lead-up to the Iraq War and beyond. It's been about 20 years since then. So I'm wondering, when you began to think of the F-word, fascism, that is, uh, with regard to the American political system, and in line with that, what do you make of the fact that the F-bomb is now being dropped by mainstream pundits and uh, political analysts with some frequency in the mainstream media these days? Well, there's a number of ways that you can interpret that. I think the most obvious and the most salient to begin with is the fact that fascism is on everybody's lips because fascism is basically here. I think that it's become an inescapable fact, something that many of us were talking about, as you noted, for for the last two decades or so. But um, it's become apparent, I think, for a lot of people, Donald Trump represented enough of a break from the sort of establishment version of politics that people took a step back and began to ask themselves, what is this uh, uh, political movement or nascent political movement that we're witnessing first manifested in the form of Donald Trump and his uh, cobbled together coalition, if you want to call it that. So I think that opened up the space to discuss this in the mainstream. But of course, that uh, I think it goes without saying that those as- those elements of the mainstream press and of the political establishment couldn't be bothered to ask themselves the role that they played in the lead up to this and rolling out the red carpet, as it were, for a true fascist movement that we're beginning uh, to see take shape. And I say Donald Trump, even though Donald Trump himself doesn't really represent what you might call a true fascist movement, the first indicator of a true fascist movement, as we see now uh, Ron DeSantis and other right-wing Republicans sort of taking up the mantle, as many of us had predicted they would. Now, whether or not they're going to be able to be successful while Donald Trump is still around on the political scene, that remains to be seen. But I do think that we've seen a, a call it a, a natural progression 
from the kind of politics that you saw under the neoconservative, neoliberal establishment, most typified by uh, Clinton and then Bush and then Obama, the sort of continuity of uh, U.S. imperialism, continuity of neoliberal capitalist exploitation. That continuity was somewhat broken in 2016, and now we have something like a conflict, an open conflict within the ruling class, within the ruling establishment, as we see in, for example, certain industries, Silicon Valley tech and Hollywood on one side and heavy industry, big industry, big oil, petrochemicals on another side. You see political divides opening up even within the capitalist establishment, which is something that we did not see 20 years ago. And so, yes, we have moved quite far down the road, though I will say that it is my opinion we're not quite yet in a fascist state. I think that would be oversimplifying it, but we're certainly well on our way. Could I follow up, uh, Eric, with one uh, question? On You mentioned the word neoliberalism, and I wonder if you could draw a line between uh, neoliberalism, which has ravaged the U.S. and world economy for probably more than four decades now. Could you sort of connect the dots between neoliberalism and the nascent fascism that you just uh, mentioned and described? Sure. I mean, this this is something that I've spent multiple hour-long interviews with many different people over the years, and it's not something I could encapsulate in five minutes, but just to put it in, in as small of a nutshell as possible, uh, neoliberalism, the sort of the race to the bottom, the drive to destroy wages, union protections, standards of living, etc., in the interests of uh, globalized capital, the financial elites, Wall Street, etc. As you say, four decades, I mean, really, we're talking five or six decades of neoliberalism now since you know, it's real introduction by Milton Friedman in the Chicago School and t- carried forward by uh, Reagan throughout the 1980s. And then, of course, Clinton in the 1990s and so forth. All of those um, economic policies and really sort of economic philosophy has degraded the quality of life, the standard of living for tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people in the United States and certainly around the world. I mean, you, you see what existed in the United States in the form of a social safety net, in the form of the uh, vestiges of the New Deal, New Deal programs, etc. They've been obliterated. That has been the multi-decade project of neoliberalism, and it is the destruction of many of those institutions that has, to a large degree, not entirely, but to a large degree, uh, uh, provided support and sort of succor to this nascent fascist movement. Because again, when we look at Donald Trump, Donald Trump absolutely uh, represents uh, the petty bourgeois class in the United States, small business owners and the like. But Donald Trump also was able to make his electoral breakthrough because he was able to peel off significant sections of the working class, the same working class that for decades had been tied uh, to the albatross of the Democratic Party through, uh, you know, organized labor and its sort of allegiance to the Democrats. And it is because of all of these economic forces that you have major segments of the working class, not all of the working class, of course, but major segments of the working class that represent uh, a a right-wing lurch. And that, of course, is also enabling this movement that has grown. And and I think it should be pointed out, though, when I wrote this article uh, just a couple of weeks after Donald Trump's election, that um, this idea that Donald Trump has remade the working class into a right-wing constituency is absolutely false. That is only true if you think of the working class as exclusively white workers in, you know, auto factories in the Midwest and so forth. But, of course, uh, anybody who knows anything about the United States today knows the working class represents a wide variety of people, people of color in every major city, uh, immigrants and so forth. It, it, it is much, much larger than sort of your hard hat, lunchbox, construction worker, working class view that many people in the New York Times and the liberal establishment seem to think. So it's a complicated question where the working class stands, but it is inescapable that Donald Trump and the right wing and the Republican Party have tried to remake themselves as the party of workers. And the only reason they're able to do that is because of five decades of neoliberalism that has destroyed working class. Erica, I have our next question. Last Wednesday, a Utah man who was fatally shot by FBI agents, he was armed when agents confronted him at his home. The FBI said he pointed his weapon at the agents and didn't respond to their commands. 
The man had allegedly made threats against uh, President Biden and openly plotted online the assassination of Alvin Bragg. That's the Manhattan District Attorney whose office is prosecuting former President Trump. This is another in a long line of incidents where violent right-wing extremists have answered Donald Trump and other GOP politicians' violent rhetoric with with their threats or actually carrying out acts of domestic terrorism. Last November, the FBI said that white supremacists continue to pose the greatest threat of committing lethal violence against civilians in the U.S., warning that such extremists hope to precipitate a race war with acts of domestic terrorism. With Trump's three criminal trials about to begin in Florida, Washington, D.C., and New York City, as well as Atlanta, Georgia, we'll get word on that soon, what's your view of the threat of violence posed by Trump supporters and other extremist militia and fascist terrorist groups? And how does that fit in with this kind of minority rule drive that the Republicans have embraced? Well, it fits. I mean, it certainly uh, fits the pattern of what I'm talking about in the form, in the sense of a sort of evolving. I, I, I was saying nascent fascist movement, but maybe a better way of saying that is one that is gradually evolving into a more cohesive movement. I, I don't have a crystal ball, and I can't predict how many such uh, acts of terrorism we might see in the United States. Um, but I will say that. You know, those kinds of incidents that you're describing where you might have an assassination plot or a plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan or any any number of other examples, those are only one part of the puzzle because I would also include many of, if not most, of the mass shootings we see in this country, which are also acts of terror, many of which are directly attributable either to Donald Trump himself or to the kind of right-wing fascist far-right politics that exists online. Uh, we see it in the form of the cell communities, 4chan message boards, and the like. And so it is widespread. It is not just stochastic terror coming from the mouth of Donald Trump and carried out by uh, lone nutcases in Utah and elsewhere. But all of these things, again, the attacks on uh, electrical grids that we've seen recently, the attacks on uh, uh, monuments to presumed New World Order conspiracies in Georgia and elsewhere. All of this is really part and parcel of the broader politics of the far right in the United States, which is, and when I say far right, we're not talking necessarily about European-style fascism of the 1930s. It's a sort of a conglomeration of a lot of different trends that we have in the United States, different strands of thought, including sort of the online conspiracy politics world, the uh, which then melds with some of the alternative communities online, which have embraced QAnon and similar fascist uh, conspiracy theories. This world, of course, combines with the quote-unquote law and order, blue lives matter, thin blue line crowd worshiping at the, uh, you know, at the at the feet, at the nightstick, at the gun of the cops, and so forth, um, who see any any um, expression of racial justice, racial solidarity, anything like that, as tantamount to treason. Right. And this is, of course, part and parcel of this uh, fascist movement that we're talking about. And so I guess to get back to the question, uh, how how do these types of acts of terror fit in? They fit in as really uh, sort of the textbook, the classic uh, fascist definition. Right. Of course, uh, we don't know if we're going to have a burning the Reichstag moment necessarily in the United States, but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be without precedent. Thank you, Eric. Um, our co-host, uh, Ruth Ann Baumgartner, has her next question for you. Um, I hope I can put one together. I, I always make the mistake of thinking while listening, and uh, uh, everything elaborates itself uh, as you talk. But I, I get a, a, a feeling um, that what the right, uh, political right has seized upon, uh, mainly through the help of Donald Trump, is a kind of atavism uh, in, the, in the right uh, that makes them susceptible to uh, dark urges uh, against what the what they perceive as things that are destroying them. And uh, the Republican Party, who used to be sort of famous for their well-pressed um, business shirts and uh, nice ties uh, and careful speech, 
are not anymore. They have the same kind of snarling delivery that uh, that we saw in uh, in German fascists and other fascist movements that terrify me. But they seem to that seems to to resonate with uh, an awful lot of people. I think um, I think that we have permitted the country to become fertile ground for this kind of. Um, rhetoric and this kind of um, stirring up by turning the American people into a nation of debtors and uh, people of various in various kinds of despair. And I was thinking while you were talking, this was my <laughs> my big mistake. But while you were talking, I was thinking about a poem by Stephen Crane, I believe. Um, he writes in uh, this very tiny poem about uh, a man he's met in the desert who was eating his heart. And that's not a direct quote, but that is almost the whole poem. And the, the remainder of the par- poem is the poet asks why he ate his own heart. And the man replies, I eat of it because it is bitter and because it is my heart. And I, I feel really when I watch um, rabble-rousing Republicans in very nice suits um, encourage that kind of behavior. That they that they see that and they decide to capitalize on it. The bitterness is what they is what they encourage to to uh, flower or or uh, feed off of. Is this making sense to you? I'm not sure it's making sense to me. Absolutely. Uh, what you're what you're alluding to, what you're getting at, I think, is really. Uh, resonates for a lot of people, and that is the the exploitation, the seizing upon and the exploiting of resentment. And resentment is running extremely high in this country. Again, resentment coming in many different forms from many different directions. Uh, Even if you're a progressive on the left, you feel bitter resentment about any number of things. The fact that your standard of living and quality of life is lower than your parents. The fact that uh, many of us are swimming in tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of student debt that we have to pay back, that we have very little chance of ever paying back in our lifetimes that we may saddle our children with. The fact that uh, everything is more expensive, inflationary pressures are driving working families like mine and millions of others into the gutter economically, struggling month to month. That all of those things breed a tremendous amount of resentment when you feel that the quote unquote American dream, which those of us on the socialist left know is always alive. But if you've been fed that your whole life and then it's taken away from you in the form of everything you see around you, you become bitter, you become angry, you become resentful. And many people turn to those that they feel channel that anger, that bitterness, that resentment. And it's people like Trump and DeSantis and, 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 you know, others of their ilk. And so I think on the one hand, it's perfectly understandable. And on the other hand, it's exceedingly dangerous as we head into increasingly unstable times internationally. And I haven't mentioned this, but I think it's worth pointing out that uh, the kind of right-wing fascist politics that we're talking about is part of a broader international movement. This is not relegated only to the United States. The uh, the far right is on the march internationally. We have uh, a number of fascist uh, governments that have taken over. I mean, openly fascist governments like, for instance, Bolsonaro in Brazil up until fairly recently. Of course, Donald Trump, who we've been talking about, but many others as well in the authoritarian mold like Vladimir Putin and, and others of his ilk as well throughout Central Asia in, in other parts of the world. And so international, which is very much uh, um, fomented by the Russians and others, as well as right-wing forces in the United States, as well as certain key billionaires that have been funding these movements. This is a this is international in scope. It is really a global problem, and we see right-wing politics on the march really all over the world. Uh, Marine Le Pen or her successors are likely to be uh, major challengers in France for the foreseeable future. You have a, a fascist government in Italy under Maloney. You have uh, fascists on the rise in Spain. I mean, these are historical fascist countries, too, mm-hmm. so it's not like it's without precedent in places like Italy and Spain. You have the uh, AFD, which is a far-right uh, political party in Germany, now is basically the second leading party in that country. I mean, I don't have to explain to anybody uh, German fascism and why that should be concerning to people. So again, I mean, this is international in scope. 
And yes, Donald Trump and, and the right wing in the United States is a big part of that, but they're not the only part. And sometimes they're not even really in the lead. In fact, I think you could make a very strong case that Donald Trump really has tailed many of the far right uh, forces around the world and only of course, uh, I guess it should be noted, though, that uh, fascism and right-wing politics in the United States is far more influential than it might be in a small country in Africa or even in a country like Brazil. But even so, this is international in scope, and I think people should recognize that, that this is a global problem that could potentially lead us to a global conflict. Very helpful uh, response. Um, and and what, what can you do about it when the... When the um when the most cynical among us, it seems, are the ones who exploit people who believe, at least, that they are perfectly, completely sincere. Well, uh, it's, a, it's a tough question to answer. I mean, the, unfortunately, the only answer I can give for each of our each of us who are maybe listening today is to do what we can to organize against these forces in our community, to do what you can to build up solidarity networks among uh, people in your community, and to more and, and more broadly to be able to have a political vision and understanding what's happening in this country right now. That this isn't really only about Republicans and Democrats. This is about a fundamental transformation of the kind of politics that exists in the United States. Um, when capitalism uh, is teetering in the way that it is, and I don't mean capitalism in, in, in and of itself, but the form of capitalism that we've had in this country seems to be teetering when, as I mentioned, the uh, upcoming generations are not going to see a rise in standards of living as the previous generations had. Uh, this is a major problem, and, this, and as the fundamental sort of institutions of capitalism begin to waver, alternatives begin to emerge. And I'm not suggesting that we're going to see a state fascist uh, system exactly along the lines of Mussolini's Italy, but we are, we are seeing a transformation. We're seeing, as you saw with Donald Trump and the attack on the elections, an attack on the fundamental institutions of the United States. Institutions which I, by the way, would say are all deeply corrupt. And as a socialist of, uh, of, of the left and of uh, uh, you know uh, socialist tradition, I would love to see uh, revolution in this country that fundamentally transforms all of those institutions. At the same time, I don't want to see those institutions being attacked from the right by fascists who want to break them down and remake them in their own image. So we have something like an existential moment in the United States, one that really shouldn't be underestimated and shouldn't be ignored. So you can organize in your community, you can vote strategically, you can do anything in between. But at the end of the day, uh, these forces are much larger than any individual, much larger than any political group or any single political movement. This is a global problem, and there's going to need to be a global solution, lest there be a global catastrophe. We're speaking with Eric Dreitster, an independent political analyst and host of Counterpunch Radio at counterpunch.org. And uh, Richard has our next question. Just uh, as we wrap up here, I just wanted to get you, you said you didn't have a, a crystal ball, but I, I mean, many of us, as we look forward to the 2024 election, are kind of terrified at the prospects of of Joseph Biden withstanding the uh, assault from the right, fearful that he may turn to the right in order to try to split the difference between the electorate, as, as the Democrats often do. What are your thoughts about the prospects for 2024, Biden being the vanguard that's supposed to lead us out of the darkness here? And uh, what do you think the Democrats should do to deal with all these different things that are coming at us? We have a uh, Cornell West from the left. We have, you know, this middle way, a uh, third way project funded by billionaires that could put Joe Manchin in the middle here trying to uh, take away the chances of uh, Democrats winning the election. Any thoughts on 2024 that you'd like to share? Well, it's it's again, it's hard to say. I have to admit, I I was I was dumbfounded that Trump won in 2016, so I would never make that mistake again. Um, I think that he shouldn't be underestimated, and I don't care how many trials might be ongoing. I think he has a very good chance of winning. Um, Biden, on the other hand, is really embarrassing as a candidate. Uh, he's you know 
he's he, he I wouldn't say that he's uh you know necessarily the worst president in the grand scheme of things, but the bar is of course extremely low. <laughs> that being said, there's as I mentioned already, there's a lot of anger in this country, particularly among people who turned out for Biden in twenty twenty. There were a lot of there were a lot of people who voted for Biden not because they had even a single positive thing to say about Biden, but because they wanted to stop Donald Trump. Many of those people may choose to stay home this time around as they realize that their student loan pay is starting and they're being crushed once again by the weight of this unbearable debt, by the weight of uh, any number of other problems, medical bills and other things that are really hounding millions of people in this country. I think discontent is running high. I think Biden benefited tremendously from the uh you know, a, a truly exasperated public when it was the end of Donald Trump's term. People were tired of the media cycle with him. People were tired of the constant uh, BS from Trump every single day on the news and Trump dominating every TV channel. And so there was a lot of there were a lot of reasons that people voted for Biden that had nothing to do with Biden. And I think that the Democrats have failed miserably to present anything close to an alternative. Obviously, Kamala Harris has been a disastrous uh, choice. There is no other candidate. So Biden is pretty much it. And so I worry tremendously that the red carpet is being rolled out for the right to seize power uh, again in form of the White House. And of course, once that happens, there's no telling how much they may consolidate and whether or not they will ever relinquish power. Well, we want to thank you for joining us uh, this morning, Eric. And um, maybe uh, as we close out, you can just reiterate... uh, the hope that you have for the future. We have been uh, talking a lot of uh, gloom and doom. I know there's a lot of hope out there. And in fact, you know, there's so many a younger generation coming up and, and working extremely hard, both, you know, sort of in traditional uh, politics, but also understanding the traditional politics limits. There's a lot of interest now in uh, sort of civil disobedience, and taking the lessons of the civil rights movement to uh, get our country back on the road. Signs of hope that you see? Um, Signs of hope would include the uh, uh, reinvigorated labor movement. I think this is very hopeful, something that we should feel very positive about. A new generation of workers who are not baby boomers who are not complacent in, in the way that baby boomers were about about unions, where we see unionization drives happening all over, including among some of the biggest companies in, in, in the country and in the world. This is tremendously hopeful, especially since we've seen the entire economy transformed over the last two generations to a service and retail economy, and now service and retail workers are standing up for their rights. I feel very hopeful about that and what that may portend for the future uh, in the form of uh, political influence uh, for those unions, political influence that may hopefully at some point be truly independent of the uh, sort of yoke of the Democratic Party. Um, I mean, that's something of a pipe dream, but there is some elements of truth in that as well. I'm very hopeful uh, for young people standing up for their rights as workers. I'm very hopeful for young people who are going to be sort of uh, uh, going to school under a system that is at least a little bit more uh, easy to deal with when it comes to finance, financial burdens, debt, and so forth. My generation that was in college 20 years ago is the one that is really uh, being crushed by that and will carry the weight of that moving forward. But young people have more options for understanding of uh, what things like debt might do to them. Um, So I'm hopeful for young people in that way. And I'm hopeful uh, in the sense that socialism is on a lot of people's lips. People are openly questioning capitalism and and, and, uh, looking at socialism, Marxism, and so forth in ways that they didn't uh, 20 years ago. When I was first demonstrating against the uh, buildup to the war in Iraq, uh, I was a college student, and nobody talked about Marx. Nobody talked about socialism. These were not words that we really discussed and 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 weren't on uh you know weren't part of the conversation and now they are and that makes me hopeful as well so i i temper the gloom and the doom with some sparks of hope but of course i also remain realistic about just how dire the situation is absolutely well eric thank you so much for joining us we'll we'll stay in touch and uh we'll look forward to the next conversation here on resistance roundtable thank you yeah i just want to mention that eric dreitzer's commentary and podcast can be found at counterpunch.org. Eric Dreitzer, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, we do have our next guest on the line, and I'd like to welcome David Diane, 
uh, to Resistance Roundtable this morning. David is the executive editor of The American Prospect. He's the author of Monopolize, Life in the Age of Corporate Power, and Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud, which earned the studs in Ida Turkle Prize. He was also winner of the 2021 Hillman Prize for Excellence in Magazine Journalism. And you can find uh, David in lots of great articles in The American Prospect. Appreciate you being here, David. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So as, as most of our listeners know, uh, disgraced former President uh, Trump was indicted by Special Counsel Jack Smith on new criminal charges August 1st based on his alleged role leading a multi-pronged attempt to stay in power after losing the 2020 presidential election to Joe Biden. That included, of course, the January 6th insurrection and coup attempt that killed five people and injured hundreds of Capitol Police officers. And, of course, there's the other... Uh, indictments, both state and federal, uh, the uh, hush money case in New York, as well as the uh, uh, the classified documents case in Mar-a-Lago in Florida. And there's likely to be another one uh, from Fannie Willis in Atlanta, Georgia, quite soon. Mm-hmm. Um, as we begin here, David, I know you've written recently about this indictment. And it's interesting that in response to Trump's three indictments, Republican politicians and their propaganda news outlets like Fox, OAN, and Newsmax, uh, they've been very disciplined in parroting Trump's defense, asserting that the prosecution of Trump was politically motivated by Joe Biden in order to hurt his chances in the 2024 presidential election, and that the twice-impeached president is being persecuted for exercising his right of free speech. Obviously, this defense is consciously dishonest, but the hope is that Republican voters will believe it as they're locked. They're really locked inside a disinformation bubble that GOP leaders hope will motivate these low information voters to turn out to cast their ballots in November 2024. The question is, what, if anything, should other non-GOP news outlets be doing to try to reach these voters with facts about Trump's alleged crimes and counter the narrative that every government institution is part of a deep deep state conspiracy to destroy Trump and the Republican Party. Well, I mean, it's hard to, to influence a voter that isn't paying any attention to you. So uh, I don't I don't know how many people you can reach, but it, it is worth noting that that Jack Smith uh, anticipated this defense from the uh, conservative movement and from the Trump legal team. He said right in, I believe, one of the first paragraphs of the indictment that Trump had every right to uh, talk about the election, to contest the election in court, uh, to exercise his free speech rights and even lie if he wanted to. Uh, the, the, the problem and, and the reason for the indictment was his acting on the lives to definitively work to change the outcome. That's the actionable part here. It, it's not, you know, to say that it's, it, this is all free speech would be to say that, uh, you know, uh, talking to a hitman and, and, and saying, please kill my wife. Uh, and then, and then the wife is 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 then summarily executed. Is just free speech. I was just talking to a hitman who happened to act on on what I was asking him to do. I mean, there, there's speech in everything, and if if the speech rises to a level of a conspiracy that is then attempted to be acted upon, uh, then then that's actionable. So uh, that that's. That's really what we're dealing with here. And, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously hard when, when you have a, a defense that has little regard for the truth that uh, is, is trying to, to claim otherwise. But uh, I, I think the legal issues are pretty clear. Thank you for that, David. Uh, Ruth Ann Baumgartner has her next question. 
Oh, mm-hmm. Scott, you surprised me. I was <laughs> getting myself together. I did want to chime in. I don't think this is a question, but but I, I, I wonder if we don't underestimate the number of people who are walking around saying, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but, even when they think they agree with Trump. I mean, yes, but... I'm not really as thuggish as he seems to invite me to be. Yes, but I, I would rather see the. I would like to see some other criminals prosecuted before, before he we prosecute him. But I don't see any reason to elect him on that on the strength of that. Uh, I myself say, you know, this is this man is a criminal. I was raised to believe that criminals get arrested and go to jail. And through most of my lifetime, it's not criminals; it's poor people who get arrested and go to jail. And I'd like to see, uh, I'd like to see this uh, this trial play out to a certain kind of justice, even if it's only symbolic, even if it uh, angers his supporters so much that he winds up elected. I'd like to see him in jail for just a couple of days, at least. Yeah. Um, I, I, <laughs> I'd like to see him in jail for the rest that's, of his that's life. An interesting uh, <laughs> uh, take on it. The uh, Cutting off of one nose, to one space, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, but we we say, you know, this is we believe in justice. There's that lady; uh, she looks so classy with her scales and everything. But we don't seem to believe in justice at all. We have our laws; we don't enforce them. We have our principles; right. we don't follow through on them. How, how can we? Uh, how can we? Who I mean, can I, who can force? Uh, the the government to uphold the principles we claim to have. I mean, I agree with you, and on that, it's a larger problem, right? We we have a two tier justice system: one for the wealthy, the well connected, powerful, and one for everybody else. And uh, that's not unique to Trump in any way. Uh, in fact, it's been been the case for for decades. We had a financial crisis that completely crashed the economy, led to ten million foreclosures, millions of people out of work, and not one bank executive uh, of, of any considerable power was uh, uh, you know, held accountable for that. Right. Uh, we've seen this for, for a long, long time. And uh, you know, what I wrote about mainly in, in the story that's uh, in the reaction to, uh, to, to this indictment was you know, the, the, the real defense that a lot of uh, both Trump's legal team and a lot of people are making is this idea that it's it's dangerous to indict a former president, that you're going to you're going to poke the bear. You're going to, uh, you know, you're, you're going to create blowback. You're going to you're going to cause unrest in the in the society. And this this is kind of how the wealthy think is is that if you punish me, the person that will actually be punished is you. During the financial crisis, when 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 people said, you know, we got to hold bank CEOs accountable, they would say that, you know, well, you know, if you try to hold the bank accountable, then you know there won't be any mortgage lending and and there won't be you know any any consumer loans and and people will suffer. Uh, so it's punish me and actually you punish yourself. Uh, that is that is a standard defense uh, for you know kind of self perpetuating impunity for the rich and powerful and uh, it, it's it, this you know is is part and parcel of this two tiered kind of justice system and and it's really a threat right it's mm-hmm. like you know if you do anything to me you're gonna you're gonna get it. And uh, this that has been enough to prevent uh, prosecutions of top political figures in the past. So, you know, Gerald Ford pardons Richard Nixon. Uh, Barack Obama ignores the the torture uh, practices of George W. Bush, says we got to look forward and not look backward. Um, But it wasn't enough this time. And actually, that's kind of interesting that uh, maybe it's because the, the, the charges here really strike at the heart of our democracy, but it wasn't enough to say, uh, you know, you're going to cause blowback if you prosecute me. Uh, that, that, that did not create a situation where Trump was either pardoned or the, the, the crimes were ignored. And, and so that's, that's at least a step forward. 
uh, base, you know, compared to the past. We're speaking with David Dian, executive editor of the American Prospect, and we're wanted to refer you to the article we're talking about, and that's titled Trump's Third Indictment and the End of Automatic Impunity. And that can be read, of course, in the American Prospect. Richard, you have our next question. Yes, thank you, David, for being with us. Uh, I wanted to refer to that article for a second. And in that article, uh, you suggest that the indictment of Donald, I call him Donald the Menace, Trump, um, you suggest that the trial of Trump for his alleged crimes would be a net positive for American democracy. So I'm at, I would like you to maybe speculate as to what you think would, would be some of the positive benefits that would accrue from Trump's prosecution. I mean, you, you've, you've mentioned, well, you know, that yeah. the, you know, the powerful often have many, they point to many of the problems that could, could occur if you, if you went after the rich and powerful. What, what would be some of the benefits? Look, I mean, I don't think that this practice of official impunity has led us to a better caliber of presidential candidates. Uh, you know, we've gone from, if you look on the Republican side of the ledger, uh, you know, you had Nixon that engaged in uh, a number of uh, dirty tricks and, and financial improprieties. Uh, to George W. Bush, who, who, you know, aggrandized executive power in a way that was terribly problematic, to then, you know, Donald Trump, who uh, did all the things that we know that he did. And it, it's the, the, the more that you say, well, if you're, if you're the president, then it's not illegal, which is what Nixon famously said in the Frost-Nixon tapes, uh, the, the more you're going to get presidents with uh, particular ruthlessness who who aren't uh, encumbered by any kind of rule of law. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the what we're seeing as we go forward. And, you know, putting up uh, a, a meaningful deterrent to that, I think, is important for uh, for for us. It's it's the bare minimum, really, to to expect you know, of a country that professes to follow the rule of law. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I think the benefits to, I don't know about the benefits to democracy, but certainly the benefits to uh, a system of government that uh, expects and, and, you know, in some ways requires or needs its, its leaders to behave under, you know, within certain, certain boundaries uh, you know, I, I think that's that's what what could come out of this. Well, David, I wanted to just turn our attention to what happened in Ohio uh, last Tuesday. Sure. As many of our listeners are aware, there was an important referendum in the middle of August, which mm -hmm. actually defies what the Republican-dominated legislature was trying to get rid of. But, of course, when the prospect of a... Uh, a reproductive rights referendum this November was on the table. They wanted to get as few people out as possible, but they lost. They lost definitively in trying to change the uh, Constitution to uh, require 60 percent of the vote for any uh, uh, referendum victories in the future. And right. They lost, lost handily, 56.5 percent to 43.5. So it was a good 13 per mm -hmm. percentage points loss. What's, in your view, the significance of this vote, for, especially for the 2024 election, and, and the future of the whole agenda of Republican minority rule? We were talking about that earlier today. Right. But they they right. essentially are trying to shut off all sort of uh, escape valves for people to overcome gerrymandering and voter suppression. It's very clear they don't think their ideas are popular and they're trying to uh, limit voters' uh, participation at all levels. Yeah, I mean, I certainly that's the first thing is that this is part of a strategy. You know, when you when you don't have popular ideas, make it so that uh, your ideas can't be dislodged by the majority. And uh, uh, voters obviously reacted very negatively to that. Uh, they 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 kind of like the idea that the majority rules and uh, Republicans have spent, you know, uh, quite a long time now trying to structure the rules in a way that 
whether or not their po- uh, their their ideas are popular, they still remain in power. Uh, everything from, as you say, gerrymandering of congressional and legislative districts uh, to the the way in which the electoral college perverts uh, the the majority rule. Uh, the 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 Senate is kind of set up in that way, uh, in terms of giving smaller states a relatively larger share of uh, the votes in the Senate. So you know we we have this kind of down the line, and it it usually rebounds to the benefit of Republicans, and they know it and they like it, and they they want to limit the ability for the people to speak, and uh, obviously that's incredibly unpopular, but. But, you know, the second and maybe the larger thing in terms of implications for the future is that the Dobbs ruling really created this thunderbolt. And this thunderbolt is still in motion. And that is that people are so angered by the taking away of a fundamental right, particularly a fundamental right of women to make the decision about their own bodies, that they have reacted extremely strongly and negatively uh, to uh, Republican governance. Uh, this is was seen not only in uh, the, the outcome of the 2022 midterms where, uh, you know, in, in what is normally a bad year for the incumbent party in power in Washington, uh, it was essentially a, a stalemate despite a terrible map uh, for Democrats and despite um, uh, you know the, the all of the challenges that we've just talked about in terms of gerrymandering and things, uh, uh, Democrats were still uh, essentially able to to battle to a draw and win a lot of key races. Uh, that's number one. But number two, when when you go to the specifics of uh, uh, abortion politics, uh, every single state where the people have had a chance to weigh in on uh, reproductive rights. They have chosen uh, the side uh, professed by Democrats and, and rejected the side professed by Republicans. And this is not just in blue states. I mean, obviously, there was a referendum here in California where I am, but uh, also Kentucky and Montana and now Ohio, although this was sort of a proxy in November. Now we're going to see an actual abortion referendum on the ballot, which will only need 50 percent of the vote to pass. And uh, by all accounts, it's it's seemingly very likely that even in the red state of Ohio, that will pass just as it has in every other state where it's been tried since the Dobbs ruling. So this has really created uh, a a remarkable uh, uh, sea change in American politics. I mean, we'll see how far it goes in, in the next election cycle when Democrats face another tough Senate map. There are uh, Senate seats in in places like Montana and Ohio and West Virginia and Arizona, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania up for grabs. Uh, You you know, we'll see what happens. But, uh, you know, uh, Republicans can't be looking at this and thinking that that, uh, they're they're going to sort of skate by on on structural gerrymandering. Uh, Obviously, the people are really upset about uh, what was done by this court and they're taking it out. On Republicans, since, of course, they can't take it out on Supreme Court justices who are, uh, you know, installed for life. Thank you, David. And uh, Ruth Ann Baumgartner has our next comic question for you. I was just going to to ask if you thought that the Wisconsin um, vote would have any impact on the amount of stuffing in in the bench that the Supreme Court sits on, if, if, if there's any way of bringing the Supreme Court back into representing something like an equitable law. I think you're talking about the, the Ohio vote. Um, oh, the Ohio, yes, but, thank you. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we've not only seen the Supreme Court, uh, uh, you know, obviously lose a lot of esteem among the public. Gallup has been asking opinions on the Supreme Court for the last 25 years, and uh, the, the most recent reading puts the Supreme Court at its lowest standing in public esteem in, in the time that Gallup has recorded surveys. That's it. Now at 40 percent, uh, not only have we seen these rulings one after another, 
that go against uh, the will of the American people. But uh, we've seen this drip, drip, drip of scandal, ethical scandal, uh, between Clarence Thomas uh, living the high life, taking junkets with billionaires, uh, Sam Alito uh, also, um, you know, on these these various trips and junkets, uh, taking taking uh, cash gifts, and uh, so I, I think that uh, what we have seen over history is that the Supreme Court does in some way respond to public opinion. You can say that there were a couple votes last year that uh, maybe reflected that. And one was a gerrymandering case where uh, in Alabama, the Supreme Court sent back a map uh, that only had uh, one majority uh, black district, Mm. even though the population of Alabama should account for two majority black districts. Um, and, uh, you know, they sent it back and said, you gotta, you gotta redraw the maps. Of course, uh, the state of Alabama did so in a way that did not create two majority black mm-hmm. districts and basically said, basically thumb their nose at the Supreme court, uh, over that. And that's going to be the subject of even more litigation. Uh, and it, it shows the sort of brazenness with which, uh, uh Republicans try to hold on to power through, uh, in this case, extrajudicial means. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you do see the Supreme Court tend to uh, get feedback from the public. And, and, you know, they wouldn't say this directly. They say they follow the law. But uh, it, it does seem that it, it molds their opinions in, in some ways, not, not 100%, obviously. Um, but as that pressure grows, uh, we, we, we could see that in the future. Uh, I'll note that uh, just just this week, the Supreme Court took a case in uh, a bankruptcy dispute with uh, respect to Purdue Pharmaceuticals, which is the company that sold OxyContin. And uh, there was a, a settlement in a series, thousands of cases, uh, related to Purdue Pharmaceuticals bankruptcy. David, gave, David, uh, David. What is called a third-party release gave immunity. David, I'm to, not sure you can yeah. hear me. David, I'm yeah. sorry. We're, yeah. we're, we have to make way for the next program. So oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, okay. sorry to cut you off, but um, uh, we, we are going to... read all about my, my, my bit about Purdue Pharmaceuticals on Monday oh. at the prospect, prospect.org.